Amen. How are we doing this morning? Good? Good? Feeling a little fat? Feeling a little happy probably, uh, more than likely, uh, hopefully. I believe that there are certain phrases, situations, uh, words that people say that strike fear into people, right? Like you hear this word, you hear this phrase, and you just get scared. How many of you growing up or maybe some of my teenagers have ever been called into the principal's office? By show of hands, it's okay. We can be honest. Quite a few of us. So all my cards on the table, I was homeschooled, so I would never call to the principal's office. But the equivalent for me uh, growing up is if my mom came to me and said, you're going to speak to your dad tonight, or your dad's going to bring the belt out tonight. That was like the principal's office for, for me, right? If you ever heard something like that, and my mom's laughing, but that did happen. She, she did do that. She did say those things. Uh, it's scary, right, as a kid, or if you're young and your parents say your full name, not a nickname, not your first name, your full name, you knew something was wrong, something was odd, something wasn't right. It's like, why are they calling me that? Uh, we traveled to Thanksgiving, my wife and I, uh, to Asheville to spend some time with some family. It was an awesome time, and on the way up to Asheville, I kid you not, we probably passed around 100 cop cars uh, just all over the place, trying to catch people speeding. And over and over and over, I would look up and I would see a cop car staring right at me and I would get scared. I would tense up. I'd say, oh, am I speeding? Did I use my turn signal? And there was at one point, uh, my wife likes to play music really loud in the car. She likes to just jam out. And so we had the music turned up and I kind of hear a faint siren behind me. And I look in my rearview mirror and I see blue lights. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, I'm getting pulled over. I was so scared. Luckily, they were pulling the car over right next to me. It was not me. I made it out. But there's these situations in life that happen that scare us, that bring about fear, just a certain word, a certain phrase, and we all tense up. We get nervous. And I think there are certain phrases, certain words, certain things in the Christian realm that can scare us. We have this Christianese language that we speak, and there's some words that if you drop it in a Sunday school class, everybody's like, oh, we're talking about that today, right? And I think one of those words is the unforgivable sin, or maybe you've heard it, the unpardonable sin. If you've grown up in church or you've been around church circles and, and around Christians, you might have heard people talk about the unforgivable sin, the sin that God won't forgive. And growing up, I was a teenager. I heard somebody speak about the unforgivable sin, but they were very vague in their description of it. They weren't very clear. So I was left as a teenager thinking that there was this mysterious sin that if I committed it, I would be doomed to hell, right? God wouldn't forgive me. I would be messed up and just left uh, alone in hell forever if I committed this sin that I had no clue what it was, what it was about, who could commit it. And I actually remember praying a prayer. I said, God, please, would you forgive me if I have committed the unforgivable sin? I did not mean it. It's kind of funny to think about it. I was asking for forgiveness for the sin that is supposed to not be forgivable. But it's really true that when we don't teach the Bible clearly or we are not uh, uh, strong in our explanation of things, we can leave people with a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And my hope this morning as we turn to our passage and we see that Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin and much more, that we will clear up some of the misconceptions surrounding it. Because really, a lot of my fear towards the unforgivable sin was due to faulty thinking, to misconceptions, to misunderstandings about what it really is. And I would imagine some of us in here, maybe if you've had experiences with the unforgivable sin, uh, it's due because you just didn't fully understand it. And you thought it might be this sin that I could commit, and then God would never forgive me. So what we're going to see is that we're going to clarify or clear up some of the misconceptions around the unforgivable sin. And we're also going to see that in Jesus's day and age, people had misconceptions about who he 
really was. And we're going to see two of those this morning, and we'll see how Jesus clarify those, clarifies uh, the, the misconceptions, and then we'll see two truths that we have to be thankful for uh, in this Thanksgiving season. So let's pray one more time, and then we will read in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you. Again, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would move in these next few moments, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would move in mighty ways, that we would be able to reflect back on this day, looking at the things that you've done in us and through us and, and just for your glory, and we would say only Jesus could do that. Only God's Spirit could do that. Only the Father could accomplish that. God, would you be glorified in everything, and would our hearts be ready to hear from you? We pray all this in your name. Amen. The passage starts by saying, Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Bezabel. Uh, I've been pronouncing that over and over and over. It's a, a fun word. And he says, he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables and said, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven of all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the first misconception that we're going to see in verses 20 and 21 is that Jesus is crazy. People thought that Jesus was crazy. Last week, we saw that Jesus was ministering to the multitude. He had this large crowd around him, and Jesus was doing amazing things, teaching amazing things, calling disciples. And here again in our text, we see that Jesus has a large crowd around him. He had a lot of fans. As Jesus progressed in his earthly ministry, the crowds got larger and larger. His name went out more and more and more, right? So there's this huge crowd around him, and it's so big in this house that he can't even eat. And I was kind of chuckling reading this because I know all of us probably had large crowds in our house this uh, past week, but it didn't stop us from eating more than our fair share of food, right? But here, Jesus, the crowd is so big that he can't eat, right? And his family hears this, so they rush over to Jesus, and it says they try to restrain him. They lay hands on Jesus. Why? Because they think Jesus is crazy. They say he is out of his mind. I was thinking of the old commercial that would come on when I was watching cartoons as a younger lad. It was the Cocoa Puffs commercial, and you would see this bird going crazy because he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And I'm thinking, this is what they're thinking about Jesus, that he's crazy, that he has gone mad. He's out of his mind. And one pastor points out a few reasons why they would have thought this. One they thought that Jesus was neglecting his health. It wasn't common to skip a meal in that day and age. So Jesus was not only not eating, but he was traveling from place to place and didn't really have a place to lay his head. So his family was afraid for his health. Why would he do that? The pastor would also say that Jesus was just not, just not living the lifestyle of a sane person, right? The pastor says this, 
He says, no sane man would give up his business that met his needs. We know that Jesus was a carpenter. And when he started his earthly ministry, he dropped this business that was meeting his needs to walk from place to place to teach, to heal, and to usher in the kingdom of God. No, no sane person would leave the business that's feeding their needs, meeting their needs, feeding their stomach. He says, no sane person would set themselves against the powers that be. Jesus was going head-to-head with the Pharisees who were going to kill him. Why would a sane person go up against the biggest Pharisees, the, the biggest religious leaders who were going to punish him and ultimately kill him? He says no sane person would gather the ragtag group of disciples that Jesus had around him. His family was afraid his crazy life would kill him. Whether out of love for Jesus or trying to protect the family name, Jesus' family rushes in and said, we've got to get this guy. We've got to take him home and, and bring him back because he is out of his mind. But the actions of Jesus' family demonstrate that they had a misunderstanding of who he truly was. Jesus was not a family member or a brother who had just gone a little crazy, but he was the son of God who had come to usher in the kingdom of God. They misunderstood who he was. They did not believe his claims to be the son of God. They did not believe the miracles that he was performing through the power of the Holy Spirit. The son of God was before them and they rejected him. They wrote him off as a crazy man. And I think many people do this today with Jesus. They say, Jesus is a great example of what it means to, to love, what it means to care. Jesus sat with widows and orphans, and we should do that too. We should start a, a nonprofit in Jesus' name. We should live our life after him. But when it comes to his claims to be the Messiah, when it comes to Jesus' claims to be God, they, they write him off, they ignore those, or they, they claim he's crazy, or, or, or say he's out of his mind, right? They just ignore that. We love his, his social work, but we don't like his claims to be deity. There's actually a movement of recent years uh, where people have begun to identify as a Christian atheist. You heard that correctly, although it might be a little hard to define because there's so, so many of them and it's so odd and weird. Typically, a Christian atheist is this. It's a person that would model their life after Jesus, right? They would look at Jesus' lifestyle and his teachings and say, I'm going to model my life after him, but they reject any notion that there is a God and they reject any notion that Jesus was God, right? It's crazy. It's crazy to say, I'm going to follow Jesus but ignore his claims to be deity. Many people look at Jesus and say, good teacher, but I'm going to ignore his claims to be Christ. They write him off as crazy. Did you know that a study done by Lifeway Research found that 30% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is a good teacher, but not God? Evangelicals, that's people like you and I and churches like ours, 30% believe that Jesus isn't even God. 30% of evangelicals don't even take Jesus at his own word. Many people write Jesus off. There are many misunderstandings and wrong beliefs surrounding Jesus today. But do you know what's interesting? The family of Jesus here that did not believe in him, did you know that many of them would actually begin to submit to him and, and live their life as if he was their Lord and Savior? They would end up believing his claims to be the Messiah. Jesus had two brothers, many other brothers, but two of them, become authors in scripture. James and Jude 
are both in the New Testament. You can read the letters that they have written. They go from not believing in Jesus to writing books of the Bible to be crucial parts of the early church. What would cause these brothers to do a complete 180? Because I can tell you if one of my brothers came to me and said, I'm God, I'm Jesus, they'd have to do a lot to make me believe that and a lot for me to submit my life to them, right? And so what did Jesus do? Well, he resurrected from the dead. After the resurrection of Jesus, it's recorded that many of his family members submitted to him as Lord and Savior because you know why? If you're buried for three days and you rise again, I'll believe just about anything that you say, right? Jesus proved that he was God and his family members worshipped him as Lord and Savior, although at the beginning they had misconceptions, they had wrong beliefs. It's like the C.S. Lewis quote that I mentioned two weeks ago that says, this man we are talking about, Jesus either was and is just what he said or else a lunatic or something worse with all these claims that Jesus made, with all these miracles that he performed, with everything that Jesus did, you and I either have to accept him at his word or deny him, write him off as a lunatic or crazy. We see that the family members of Jesus believed him because he resurrected. There's a second misconception that we see that is much worse than the first, uh, much more bold, much more slanderous, and just shocking. It's this in verse 22. It says, the scribes who had came down from Jerusalem said this to Jesus, he is possessed by Bezalel, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. This section starts by telling us that these scribes are coming down from Jerusalem. These are the legal specialists, the the know-it-all, the bigwigs, and they've heard about Jesus's ministry, right? Jesus is doing too much to be ignored, so they're coming down to inspect Jesus's ministry, to say whether it is legitimate or not, whether it's of God or of something else. And notice what they say. They say it's not from God, but They don't say that Jesus is a phony or a fake, right? They don't accuse Jesus of just tricking people with like sleight of hand street tricks, right? They can't deny the power of Jesus. Jesus was doing too much for the scribes to just say, he's lying to you, he's fake, ignore him. Jesus' power was undeniable. And I believe that some of us in this room have situations in our life that we reflect back on and we see a relationship was restored, a, a family member was saved, a door was opened, and we would say, Only Jesus could have done that, right? You cannot deny the power of Jesus moving in your life. And neither could the scribes deny the power of Jesus right before their face. So what they do is they attribute his power to demonic forces, right? Jesus is so great doing so many things that they can't just ignore it. So they say he is doing this by the power of Satan. Look at what he says. They first say that he is possessed by Bezabal. Visible refers to the prince of demons. So what they are saying is that Jesus is possessed by a demon. But they go on to say that he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So they're literally saying, literally telling Jesus, the son of God, that he is possessed by a demon and that Satan himself is controlling him. It's crazy. A shocking statement. The scribes look at all of the amazing things that Jesus was doing. The things that we read, and it causes us to worship God. We say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that Jesus did this or did that. They look at those things and say, that's satanic. That's demonic. He's empowered by Satan. There's actually Jewish texts that are outside of the Bible 
that were not written by Christians that confirmed that Jews thought this. This isn't just some made-up story by some Christians. And the, the Talmud, which is a Jewish document that contains Jewish teachings and rabbis' teachings over the years, says this, Yeshua of Nazareth was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover because he practiced sorcery and led people astray. What a great testimony of the power of Jesus, that it was real. What we read in our Bible actually happened, and Jews were having to figure out, what do we do with this guy? Because we don't want to believe what he says, but his power is undeniable. So they said it's demonic, it's sorcery, it's black magic. What a convincing argument for the validity of the claims of Christianity. This is what the scribes believed about Jesus and what they were telling people. And so we'll see how Jesus responds to their uh, very bold but uninformed claims about him. We see a correction of the misconception in verses 23 through 26. He says, so he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. He gives them three parables. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties, <clears throat> ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Have you ever heard someone say something? Make a comment, uh, say something to a friend, and it just shocked you? You're like, I can't believe that somebody would say this, or I can't believe someone had the boldness to actually say that out loud. We see this happen at Thanksgiving a lot, right? Uh, you get all these family members from all over the country, all walks of life. You put them around a dinner table, and who knows what's going to happen, right? Like you have your crazy liberal aunt and your crazy conservative uncle, <clears throat> and they just go at each other. It's, it's crazy, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone would say that. Working with students, I hear stuff all the time that I'm just like, oh my gosh, you actually said that out loud. Like, you actually said that to me or actually said that to your friend. I can't believe it. What we have here in this text is something similar to that except a million times worse. The scribes just looked at Jesus and said, he's possessed by a demon. Like, that is shocking. Don't let just the, the, the uh, just shocking nature of that wear off on you, right? They have just accused Jesus of being possessed by demon. And so Jesus responds with three parables. And the first one is about a kingdom. He says that a kingdom divided cannot stand, right? We know that if a nation goes to war with itself, that nation will be weaker, right? Even if it wins the war, it will fall, right? We see all these great dynasties throughout history that end up falling, the Roman Empire and so many more. Often what happens with those is that there's either a kingdom stronger than them or the kingdom begins to corrupt on the inside. They begin, become divided and with politics and other things. If you look at the Roman Empire, you see a lot of that happening within their empire. He also says that a family divided against itself cannot stand. We know that if we take a family of four or five and you put half of the kids on mom's side and half of the kids on dad's side, that family is going to be toxic. That family is going to end in uh, corruption and, and divorce and heartbreak because you are divided, not united. You know, if you watch sports, if you see your favorite sports team in the big game and all the big players are arguing with each other, pushing each other, cussing each other out, and your coaches are freaking out, walking off the sidelines, you know your team's probably not going to win that game because they are divided. They are not working as a team. 
And the point that Jesus is making is, if I'm really possessed by Satan, why am I casting out demons? Why would Satan want to stop his own kingdom from furthering? Right? Why would Jesus be used by Satan to stop Satan's evil deeds? Jesus is pulling on their logic. He's saying, you're not thinking correctly. That was really a stupid thing to say. He says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. He really just shows that they are thinking and speaking illogically. It's just not true. And he uses one more parable of the strong man. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. If I was to go and find the strongest man I knew and break into his house to steal all his valuables, there's one thing I would have to do. I would have to tie that strong man up. I would have to subdue him so I could take his stuff and he doesn't come and beat me up, right? And there's another thing that I have to have. I have to be stronger than the strong man to be able to tie him up. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that Satan is the strong man and that he is the one, Jesus is the one breaking into the house. And we know that the Bible tells us that Satan is strong. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that Satan deceives, and Revelation would call him the deceiver. John 8, says that he is a, a murderer and the father of lies. 1 Peter tells us that he is a lion seeking to devour people. We know that Satan has great power, that he is strong, and he is seeking to destroy you, and Satan is not alone. Satan has demonic forces and demons on his side. Ephesians 6, 12 tells us that there are cosmic powers that we wrestle against over this present darkness. We wrestle against spiritual forces in, uh, of evil in heavenly places. One commentator would say that demons are Satan's agents who delight in carrying out his diabolical agenda. Satan is powerful. And he seeks to grow his kingdom by sowing seeds of wickedness and leading souls to destruction. So Jesus grants that Satan is strong, but Jesus says this, I'm the stronger man who is coming to plunder all his possessions. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bind Satan up, destroy his kingdom, and set the spiritual captives free. So Jesus is clarifying that he is not working by the power of Satan, but he is coming in to destroy the power of Satan. He is ushering in the kingdom of God to destroy the kingdom of Satan. And this is a beautiful truth that we, we uh, uh, just lift up and celebrate that through the gospel, Jesus came and crushed the head of the serpent. And that the second coming of Jesus, there will be no great battle. <laughs> Jesus will come in as a conquering king and put evil to death forever and ever and ever. Satan is strong, but Jesus has disarmed him and triumphed over him, as Colossians 2, 15 tells us. So to claim that Jesus is false, it's just really stupid. It couldn't be any farther from the truth. Jesus has come to disarm Satan, take him down. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, spiritual warfare is real. Satan is real. Hell is real. Demonic forces, demons are real. And they are coming after you. Satan is coming after you. His demons are coming after you. But also make no mistake, God is real. God the Father is real. God the Son is real. And God the Spirit is real. And the power that we have in the Trinity is greater than any power that Satan has. 
If it was you and I against Satan one-on-one, Satan would wipe us clean every single time. Ten out of ten times, Satan would take you down and he would take me down. But with God on our side, Satan stands no chance. That's what the Bible tells us, that no temptation has overcome us except what is common to man. And God provides a way out. And we know that Genesis 3.15 promised that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, and he did on the cross. Satan has no power over you. But on this side of eternity, he does tempt you. He does come after you. Make no mistake, he is trying to, but make no mistake, God is stronger than him. You and I, let's be honest, we are weak, but God is strong, and he is empowering us to overcome the demonic forces of this day and age. It reminds me of the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast, and the lyrics begin by saying, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Jesus is holding on to you right now, right? He's holding on to you. Though the tempter is real and strong, Christ is holding on to you, watching over you, caring for you, empowering you through the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. This is awesome. And what Jesus is telling the scribes, he's saying, I am not demonic or empowered by Satan, but I'm crushing him. I am taking him down. And Jesus continues in his response to the scribes in the next section. And in this section, he gives them a a very uh, solemn warning, a very uh, serious warning to them. And he begins to talk about the unforgivable sin. And let, let's, let's see what he says. He says, truly, he continues talking to the scribes. He says, truly, this means it is true, like this is real. I tell you, people will be forgiven of all sins and whatever blasphemies that they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of a eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Throughout church history, uh, people have been puzzled by the unforgivable sin and troubled by it. There's been a lot of suggestions about what it truly is. What is it? And, and some people have suggested that the unforgivable sin is committing something, uh, doing a really, really bad sin, something really heinous, like just, just awful, like adultery or murder. Uh, those are two popular ones that people said throughout church history. Another one was if you deny Christ under pressure. So some people would say that if someone came up to you with a gun to your head and said, do you believe in Jesus? And that you said no, they would say, that's the unforgivable sin. Uh, some people would say that it is uttering or saying something false about the Holy Spirit, which happens a lot in churches. Uh, so what is the unforgivable sin? I don't think it's any of those things. I think those are all wrong and not rooted in the, the biblical passage here. And so I've read a lot of definitions on the unforgivable sin. I wrote a lot myself, actually, and I want to give you a definition. But uh, I've got to be honest As I was writing my definitions of the unforgivable sin, I just kept coming back to one written by Danny Aiken, and I kept feeling like I'm really just plagiarizing him, so I should just give you his definition. Uh, And so this is what he says, and I think this is really helpful, and we'll try to unpack this some, and hopefully this will give us a, a good kind of guidance as we work through this next section of the passage. Danny Aiken says this, 
The unforgivable sin is to knowingly, willingly, and persistently attribute to Satan the works of God done by and in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who testifies to these truths in your heart. I think that's a really good definition. And I think it's important for us to remember that our understanding of the unforgivable sin has to be determined by the biblical text. Anytime we're doing theology or, or uh, a biblical hermeneutic of stuff, we need to make sure that we're looking at the text to determine the meaning, right? So as we're looking at this, let's keep in mind the context. In the context, Jesus is warning the scribes of this serious sin that they are committing or on the verge of committing. They are the scribes. They have the knowledge everything in the Old Testament, right? The scribes knew the Old Testament prophecies that were pointing to Jesus, right? The scribes had seen what Jesus was doing, the miraculous things. They had his teachings, yet the scribes were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting the words of Jesus, rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit, and saying, no, he is demonic, out of anybody in the world, the scribes should have been the one to first notice Jesus because they had all the knowledge, all the tools, all the gifts that they needed to say, this is the Messiah. William Lane, who's a commentator, says this. This is important. He says, this severe warning given by Jesus was not addressed to laymen, to a, a common person, but to a carefully trained legal specialist whose task was to interpret the biblical law to people. It was the scribe's responsibility to be aware of God's redemptive action. And so as Jesus was doing all these different miracles, the Holy Spirit was testifying to Jesus' divinity. The Holy Spirit was empowering Jesus, showing that this is the Son of God. This is the one who has came to save you from your sins. And what the scribes are doing is they're seeing Jesus work. They're seeing the Holy Spirit empower him, and they're rejecting it. They're attributing it to Satan. So I want you to track with me for just a second so we can fully understand this. The Bible tells us that before we are saved, we are spiritually blind. We have hardened hearts. No one seeks God on their own. And 2 Corinthians, it should be on the screen, says this. I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one, this is important, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What this is saying is that the only way for you or I to say that Jesus is Lord, to give our life to Christ, is if the Holy Spirit opens our eyes because we are spiritually blind. We don't care about the things of God. So the Holy Spirit in salvation has to open your eyes, open your heart to the truth of the gospel. Martin Luther says this, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. He's saying, by my own strength, I can't come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. He says this, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me by his gifts, sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. You say, okay, okay, okay. What are you saying? What are you getting at? This is what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit was giving witness to the divinity of Jesus, to the fact that he was the Messiah who had came to save sinners, and the scribes were rejecting it. They were saying, we don't believe what the Holy Spirit is telling us. We believe that it is from demonic forces. It's from Satan. So the sin of the scribes that's unforgivable, or the sin that they're on the verge of committing, is that their hearts are hardened to the truth of God. They are rejecting Jesus, rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit. And once you do that, 
Once you say, I don't believe that Jesus is Lord, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is true about what he's trying to show me, you have no salvation. Where else would you go for salvation if you reject the Holy Spirit's witness about Jesus? Jesus is the only one who can provide forgiveness of sins. So if you reject all of that, if you push that all to the side and say, I don't believe that, it's all demonic, you will not be forgiven of your sins because you can't go anywhere else for forgiveness. And notice verse 30. It says this about the scribes. It says, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That phrase, they were saying, is important because it signifies that they were continually saying this. The scribes, in their heart, continually rejected Jesus, continually said he was possessed by a demon. So we see the state of the Pharisees and the scribes' heart is a hardness towards the things that God has done through the gospel. Hardness of heart towards what the Spirit is doing. So for these scribes, where are they to go for salvation if they are rejecting Jesus? One commentator says that the unforgivable sin is not a single act, but it's a, a habitual action and attitude towards Jesus. Right? The unforgivable sin is not that you just do something one time and then God will never forgive you, but it's that in your heart, in your mind, you continually reject Jesus and reject the witness of the Holy Spirit. And if that is where you are in life, then where will you find forgiveness from? That is where this passage is going. And so it's a solemn warning to these scribes. It's serious. He's saying, you better not do this. Some of them might already be there. And we know that atheists have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that people from other religions, and even you and I who once rejected Jesus are now Christians. But if you make it to your grave and you've rejected Jesus throughout your whole life, you will not have forgiveness of your sins. And the question arises, can I commit this unforgivable sin today? And based on what I just said, I would say I don't think we need to worry about a single sin uh, that you might commit, commit, but you need to worry about the kind of heart posture that the scribes had. If in your heart you continually say, I don't really believe what Jesus has said about himself. I don't believe what the Holy Spirit has tried to show me. If you continually reject the gospel, if you continually that I don't believe in Jesus. That is what he's getting at. That's the unforgivable sin. You can today find forgiveness if that is you, but if you get to the end of your life and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you will not be forgiven. And I think that's really what this passage is getting at. It's not that if you commit adultery or murder once that you're not a Christian anymore. We don't believe that you can lose your salvation. But... If you have this hardness of heart, like the scribes did, Jesus would say, you will get to a point, you will, make, you will get to the point of no return, basically. <laughs> you will pass that line and you will not be forgiven. And some might say, as a Christian, can I commit this sin? So I would simply say, no, because you've already placed your faith and trust in Jesus. He is already your Lord. He is already your Savior. <laughs> so you cannot reject him now. You are saved. We believe here at this church, once you are saved, you are always saved. So this is a sin that a Christian need not worry about committing. But if in your heart you realize that you are becoming cold to the things of God, you think that I'm beginning to reject Jesus, you should self-reflect and say, have I ever truly believed? But that's a conversation for another day. And in this passage, as we're coming to a close, uh, someone in Kid City uh, earlier, they said, hey, can you make sure you're kind of short today? Because we're in Kid City, and uh, 
said, sometimes the kids are crazy. And I said, I got you, but uh, I guess I don't have them today. They're just going to have to power through. In this passage, we can make a mistake by hyper-focusing in on the unforgivable sin. And that's all we talk about. And what I want to do is draw our attention to two truths quickly. Two truths that we should be thankful for uh, in this season of Thanksgiving that I see from this passage that are beautiful that we should not overlook. The first one is this. The first truth that we should be thankful for is said by Jesus in verse 28. He says that people will be forgiven of all sins and whatever blasphemies that they utter through the work of God in salvation, any sin can be forgiven. People like the Apostle Paul who were murdering Christians and persecuting the church can find forgiveness for their sins. No matter what you have done, you might be in here and say, man, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the bad things that I've done. You wouldn't welcome me here in this church if you knew what I've done. Maybe we wouldn't, but God knew everything that you've done. That's, that's the beauty about God. He knows everything. So God looked at you. Jesus looked at you and said, I know all the wicked, nasty, dirty, sinful things you're going to do, and I'm still going to die for you because I love you. This is the beautiful truth in this text that any sin can be forgiven. Any person can find salvation through the gospel because Jesus died for you. These are the words of Jesus saying this. Any sin will be forgiven. So as a Christian today, I stand here forgiven of all the wicked things that I've thought, all the mean things that I've said, all the evil deeds that I've done. I stand here forgiven because like that song said, the blood of Jesus has covered me through the gospel. And so as we're still in this Thanksgiving season, as we talk about, I'm thankful for family, for football, for food, let us be thankful for the forgiveness of sin that we have in the gospel. Christian, hear me. This should be our motivation for everything that we do in life. Your motivation to be a good husband, a good father, a good friend, a good child is the gospel. That Jesus has loved me, so now I will go love other people. This is a beautiful, beautiful truth that we should be for every single day. That Christ has died, that any sin can be forgiven. And now, Christian, don't you look at people... I, I, I'm tempted to do this. I see someone, whether it's on the news or just that I know, and they're crazy. Like, they're wild. They're out there. And I'm like, man, who could save him? Jesus could, right? Because he's died for any sin. He can save any person. So if you have a prodigal child, don't you worry. God can save him. You have someone that you think is too far gone. God can save them through the work of Jesus on the cross. And the second truth is this. We have the Holy Spirit. As I was reading through this text, I was reminded of just the power of the Holy Spirit and all that he does for us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us, we have the same power that Jesus had working through him. We may not do all the same things that Jesus does, but we have the same Holy Spirit inside of us, convicting us of sin praying on our behalf, illuminating scripture, and doing so much more. Listen to Jesus' words in John 14. I can't remember if I put this on the screen. I did. Really small, though, so good luck. It says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Verse 17, he is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him, the Holy Spirit, because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And then we skip down to verse 26. It says this, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. Though we don't have Jesus by our side like the 12 disciples had, we have the Helper, the Holy Spirit inside of us, with us every single day, empowering us to live for Jesus to be the Christian that we are called to be. Anytime I speak to our students and I tell them that, hey, God has called you to share the gospel or God has called you to be sexually pure or God has called you to love your neighbor, I make sure to add in that that is only possible if you rely on the Holy Spirit. That's your source of power in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit. Some of us are just doing a real bang-up job in our walk with Christ right now because we aren't relying on the Holy Spirit. We're trying to do it on our own strength. And this is the beautiful truth, that we don't have to. That God is giving us the power. Matt was just talking in the back before the service saying that if we mess this all up, it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit can still speak. It's not reliant on me to preach or him to sing or anybody else. If the Holy Spirit is moving, that is where the power is at. Not in a man, not in a woman, not in our gifts, but in the Holy Spirit's power. And so for you and I to be the Christians that we need to be, it will only happen if we rely on the Holy Spirit. And I know we're Baptists, and this might make you a little uncomfortable, but the Holy Spirit is real, and he is your source of power. And I'm thankful that I am not left here alone on this earth trying to live for Jesus by my own strength because I would fail. I still fail every single day, but I need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, to live out the fruits of the Spirit, to pray that the Spirit would empower me, because that is where my power lies. Through all the misconceptions about Jesus, through all the different people that have hardness of heart, we get to see who Jesus truly is. We get to see the whole Trinity, who the whole Godhead truly is. And when we walk with Jesus, day in and day out, life is beautiful. Not always easy, but it is beautiful. When we walk by the Spirit, we begin to flourish how God, because we're, we're living out what God has made us to be, how God has designed us. Like we were designed to be in the garden with God. And so on this side of eternity, when we walk with God daily, we get a picture of what heaven is going to look like because we're walking with Jesus. We're walking by the Spirit. So in closing, in, in uh, uh, application, uh, I just lost my notes. So if you could go to the next slide, uh, this is what I first want to remind you, that if you're not a Christian in here today, you don't have to be like the scribes and miss out on everything that Jesus has done for you. You can look at Jesus and embrace him and experience and have eternal life. The book of Romans says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is only one way to heaven and it is through Jesus. And as Jesus said in this passage, you can have your sins forgiven today. You don't have to miss out on the beautiful truth of the gospel. Next slide. Uh, it's not there. That's okay. That's okay. Think of you as a Christian, right? All the things, right? Christians, we wear many different hats. Some of you are fathers, husbands, co-workers, bosses. Some of you are children, students, athletes. Some of you are mothers, wives, friends, this and that. Think of all the things, a disciple of Jesus, all these things that God has called you to be. Would you rely on the Holy Spirit for this strength? Would you rely on 
God, to be the disciple that you need to be, to be the, the friend, the, the mother, the father. Rely on the Spirit. Maybe your marriage needs a touch of the Holy Spirit in it. Maybe your friendships need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to take them to the next level, right? Maybe our church staff needs uh, more of the Holy Spirit so that we can minister to the saints better and better and better. How can you begin to rely on the Holy Spirit more and more in life? The people closest to Jesus thought him to be crazy. They looked at him and said, he is insane. True Christianity seems insane to an unbelieving world. But throughout church history, many faithful devoted followers of Christ have been seen as out of their mind, just as Jesus. Hear me on this. Maybe what our country needs today is more Christians who are out of their mind for Jesus, more Christians who are devoted to the kingdom of God like Jesus. Ken Hughes says this, that if Christ is who he says he is, then the sickest thing in the world is to follow him. He would say that Christianity needs more of Jesus' madness. Maybe in your life you need a little bit more craziness, but craziness for all the right things, craziness for Jesus. Maybe our churches are struggling so much in America because we aren't focused on Jesus. We aren't crazy for him. We aren't sold out for him. What could change in our city? What could change in your families? What could change in your neighborhoods if you were crazy for Jesus and God's kingdom? Hear me on this, Satan is strong, but Jesus has made him look weak. And one of the most foolish things that you can do as a Christian is not prepare for the spiritual warfare that you will face. I said this earlier, Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, but on this side of eternity, him and his demons, they can still tempt you. I would encourage you as you go to your life groups, or if you're not in a life group yet, go home and study Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and read how you can begin to prepare for this spiritual war that you are facing right here, right now. As you walk out of those doors, it's wartime, right? And so you've got to be prepared. I would encourage you to study that. Uh, Kid City, they got to go, right? So we don't have time to look at Ephesians, but you have to do it on your own time. And I'll just end with this. Remember that Jesus came to forgive all sins. You cannot outsin the cross of Jesus Christ. You cannot outsin the grace of the gospel. All you have to do is ask for forgiveness. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would encourage you today, you're a Christian with hidden sin, call out to Jesus for forgiveness. And if you are an unbeliever, call out to Christ for forgiveness. In these next few moments, as Matt comes up to sing, I'll be down front. Uh, there's, there's deacons and, and good Christians all across this room. So if you would like to be forgiven of your sins today, you would like to call out to Jesus. You can do that today by just praying to him and saying, God, I am a sinner. I recognize my need to repent. I recognize my need for forgiveness. I believe that Jesus has saved me. You can do that today. Let's pray.